passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. The quest for revenge permeates our culture. It's a, it's a part of everything that we see in our culture. Uh, movies are often about the quest for revenge. You see someone who has been hurt early on in the movie, and then the rest of the movie is their search for justice and revenge. And you see this in TV shows. You see this uh, in books. You see this in real life. In fact, the classic book turned into a movie called The Count of Monte Cristo is actually all about this. It's a man who is searching after revenge for those who had wronged him in the past. The TV show Revenge is about, you guessed it, revenge. And who, of course, could forget probably the coolest quote in movie history coming from the movie Gladiator, where Russell Crowe says, My name is Maximus Decidius Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Now, beyond the fact that that's just so cool because Russell Crowe just nails that line, it strikes a nerve with us because each and every one of us has felt the same thing, this same quest for justice, for revenge. Each each of us has experienced a desire to get back at those who have wronged us. All of us long for justice. All of us long to make things right. And when that justice is denied us, we want to take matters into our own hands. For the business person whose business partner breaks a verbal agreement, leaving you stuck with a huge financial loss, you want justice. For the person whose boss takes all the credit for your idea and gets praised in front of the entire company, you want fairness. For the person who's been verbally berated in front of their superior, by their superiors in front of everyone else, you want to lash out. For the person who has experienced verbal or physical abuse, you want to make the people pay. For the person who's had their spouse abandon them for someone else, you want to get even. And wherever justice is lacking, our first inclination is to respond in anger with a desire to make things fair. And it doesn't matter how we do that. We just want to make things right. We want justice. We oftentimes try to take it into our own hands. But if we aren't careful If we try to take things into our own hands, it can consume us. It can become an all-consuming desire in our hearts to make things right. And it focuses on on that to the expense of everything else in our lives. And we're just like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. It consumes us. Our entire life is dedicated to this search for revenge and for justice. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this. As Christians, should we be different? As Christians, should we be different? How does God want us to handle the injustices, the suffering, the mistreatments that we experience? The things we experience at work, at home, or in the community? 
And that's what this text wrestles with this morning. It wrestles through our desire for justice, our desire for revenge. Our text answers this with a real crucial statement, a real crucial truth. And I want to share it with us right here at the very beginning. As we suffer at the hands of others, we need to entrust justice to the just judge. Entrust justice to the just judge. When life is unfair, when suffering is all that you experience at the hands of others undeservingly, we should entrust justice to the just judge. And as Christians, it's, as Christians, it's, it's crucial for us to know who God is. Because once we know who God is, then we can actually begin to put this into practice. We can begin to entrust justice into God's hands. And we know that God is big. That God knows what he is doing when he acts, and God knows what he is doing when he stays silent. God has a plan, and God is bringing that plan to fruition. And so we should trust in him to execute justice on our behalf. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, we've been going through the book of First Peter. And we took a a few-week break to go through the book of Jonah while our senior pastor was out of town. But now we're back into Jonah, or excuse me, back into 1 Peter. And we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. This theme that we're looking at, this quest for justice, the, the theme that God is a very big God who is in charge and knows what he's doing, is not something that's just found in our passage this morning, but it is something that's found throughout the book of 1 Peter. In the midst of the suffering that you experience, God knows what he is doing. The last time we were in 1 Peter, we looked at the call for Christians to submit to the authorities, to the government especially, that God has placed in our lives. Even when we're suffering at the hands of the government, it is our call as Christians to live submissively to live God-honoring lives. And we actually mentioned that the best citizens in the country should be Christians who submit out of a love for God, out of a passion for God, trusting that God knows what he's doing. And this morning's passage looks especially at the relationship between a boss and their workers, between an employer and an employee. But it's not just about our vocations. It's not just about the relationships that we have between those who are over us in our jobs. It can be applied to any other area of life. This search for justice permeates all of life, and so this text focuses on all of life, and especially looks at the times where we suffer undeservingly at the hands of others. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage is printed in your sermon notes as well as on the screen behind me. So please follow along as I read aloud First uh, Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. As we seek to entrust justice into God's hands, the first thing we have to do is learn how to handle hardships. And we handle hardships by looking at God. 
We handle hardships by looking at God. How do we submit to authority? We submit to authority with respect. That's what this is telling us here in 1 Peter. And how do we trust God with justice? Well, we do that by looking at God. We look at God in the midst of these situations. Peter starts this passage by looking at servants. He addresses servants and he's talking to them. And some of your translations may actually say something different, may actually say uh, that he's addressing slaves. And this word that he's using here can be translated both ways, uh, but they were technically slaves at the time, the people that he is writing to. The slavery that they were in is very different than what we typically think of when we think of slavery today. And I think it's important for us to address this as we talk about this passage. Slavery in the first century is very different than slavery uh, in our minds and our concepts. When we think of slavery today, we typically think of uh, the mid-Atlantic slave trade during the 16, 17, and 1800s, where people were uh, captured and stolen from their homes and sold into slavery based off of their race. That's something that God disagrees with wholeheartedly. But that's not what's going on here in the first century. See, the first century slavery, even though God still wasn't uh, in favor of it, God was still opposed to it, wasn't nearly as harsh. That's why some passages translate translate this as servants rather than slaves. Uh, It wasn't based on race, but it was actually based on finances. So if someone was out of money, then they would sell themselves into slavery, and that's how you got out of debt. As you sold yourself into slavery, you would continue to make money And you'd have the opportunity to eventually buy your own freedom as you worked for someone else. Many masters in the first century actually considered slaves to be a part of their family. And because they considered them to be a part of their family, actually treated them very well and treated them like family. And so it's not as bad as the modern concept of slavery, but it's still slavery. It's still something that God doesn't like. It is still a place where people can be owned by someone else. They could still be beaten for no good reason just based off of their master's mood. They weren't considered to be a part of society. And it took them a long time to purchase their own freedom, even if they were able to do so in the long run. Slavery was not a good thing in God's eyes, but this is the context that Peter writes to. He writes to household slaves. And as he's writing to them, he writes to these slaves who are Christians in the northern part of Asia Minor, if you remember. And just as he got done telling the whole church to submit to the authority of the government, now he's addressing the specific group of the church, these household slaves. And he is telling them that they are called to submit to their masters. This submission is a universal principle, no matter what. Your master is like. Submission is this universal principle to the leadership that God has placed over us at that time, regardless of how corrupt it is. Called to submit. This was a big deal in Peter's day. When someone would write a letter to another group of people, they would never address the slaves. Slaves were never addressed in that time. So the fact that Peter is addressing them is significant. The fact that Peter spends a lot of time talking to them and telling them how they are called to live their lives is extremely significant. And the word that Peter uses here to refer to slaves is actually a unique one. It's not found very often in the Bible. And it refers to a special type of slave. Now, he calls them household slaves. 
And this was, referred, this was used to refer to uh, slaves who were skilled workers. Okay, when we typically think of slavery, we kind of think that it's just a lot of uh, manual brute force labor. But in the ancient times, slaves were doctors, slaves were accountants, slaves were artisans. So there were a number of different people that fit under this umbrella. And the specific word that is used here to refer to these slaves, household slaves, refers to them as highly skilled workers in their master's household. These are people who are doctors, people who are accountants, who are in charge of their master's entire operation. These are people who at one time uh, probably were more financially secure than their master, were making more money, but they hit a bad time and had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debt. These are people who likely are uh, smarter than the people who God has placed over them. And in this context, Peter is telling them to submit to those who are above them. But they're not just supposed to submit to the people God has placed above them. They're supposed to submit to them out of respect for God. If you remember last time we were in 1 Peter, Peter is telling the same thing to the slaves that he did to everyone else regarding the government. You submit to the government out of respect for God, and you do the same thing as a slave. You respect God and submit to the government for that. It doesn't matter how good they are to you. It doesn't matter how evil they are to you. You submit yourself to them anyway. Now, this is primarily about the working relationship between a slave and a master. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it can be applied to every area of our life, many situations today. One obvious one is between the boss and their employees. Have you ever had a boss that isn't great? I I will say I have. Uh, Have you ever experienced frustration with your boss, even if they are a good boss? I'm sure you have. Have you ever been taken advantage of by the person that God has placed over you? Peter is saying that you are called to submit to the people God has placed over us anyway. And we're supposed to do this with respect. And Peter tells us the reason why in verse 19 when he says this, that we are supposed to be focused on God. We're supposed to be focused on God. When we're focused on God and when we endure hardships at the hands of others, God sees that as commendable. God sees that as a good thing, something that he is going to reward someday. When we choose to overlook the suffering that we experience, no matter how small it may seem in the grand scheme of things or maybe how large it is, when we overlook that suffering because we are focused on God, God is pleased with that. Now, don't miss what Peter is saying. Peter isn't telling us that we are commended to God for enduring hardship for any reason. So if you endure suffering at work because you are strong and you are able to handle it, and you continue to stay silent because of that, it's not commendable to God. If your boss passes you up for a promotion and gives it to someone else who doesn't deserve it, and you don't speak up because you're just too lazy to speak up, it's not commendable to God. If you are verbally berated by your boss in front of a large group of other employees and you don't speak up because you're just scared, that's not commendable to God. Peter tells us that it's commendable to God when we endure suffering, when we are mindful of God in the midst of those situations. What does this look like? I'm going to use an example from, uh, from a student's life, uh, something from school. Let's say you're a high school student, and you really struggle with math. 
You spend hours each day going over math. You, you focus on it because you want to get good at it. And the test time comes and you get a C minus. This is a great, a great job for you, but your teacher mocks you in front of the entire class. Now, this probably wouldn't happen, but let's say they do in this example. In that moment, you are angry. Your face is flushed red with a desire to get back at this teacher. But then you think of 1 Peter chapter 2, and you think of God. You think of this passage, and you remember that God is big. You remember that God is in charge, that God is in control, and you decide to stay silent. You decide to entrust justice to the just judge. Now, you may calmly say something to their superiors, and you probably should in that case. But when we desire and when we decide to place justice in God's hands, God is pleased in that situation. God will commend us one day. And that's what it means to be mindful of God in these times, whenever we experience injustice. Of course, Peter also mentions that there are times when we're going to suffer, and we deserve it. It's just the way things happen. We deserve it sometimes when we suffer. I love this quote from Bill Murray. Uh, Bill Murray once said this. He says, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you are dumb and you make bad decisions. That's a little like what Peter is saying here. There are going to be times when you suffer because you deserve it. If you are caught embezzling money from your company and you are fired because of it, you deserve the suffering that happened at that moment. There's no, uh, nothing commendable about you enduring the hardship that you are going through. You can't ask God, why is this happening to me in that situation? It's pretty straightforward. So what is Peter saying? Well, Peter is telling us that we should submit to the authorities that are over us with respect. And when we suffer, we should trust God who is in charge. We endure for Jesus' sake. We endure because God has called us to. And when we do, God is pleased. See, other passages of Scripture talk about storing up treasures in heaven. And this is one of the ways that we store up treasures in heaven, when we endure justice because we're thinking about God, we store up treasures in heaven. We are faced with the option to retaliate against someone and we decide to stay silent and focus on God. God is pleased with that. God is rooting for us in those situations. And when we handle our hardships by looking at God, it's the first part of helping us to entrust justice to a just judge. Let's keep looking, picking up in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. As we continue this passage, we see another crucial piece of information for us for when we're faced with unjust suffering. And that is this, that Jesus's suffering is an example for us. What Peter is telling his audience thousands of years ago, and what Peter is telling us this morning is that suffering injustice is a part of the life of being a Christian. It's a part of Christianity. See, Peter had experienced this suffering firsthand. Peter had been uh, persecuted for his faith. We see this throughout the book of Acts. We see that Peter eventually was crucified for his faith. He knew that suffering was a part of 
Christianity. And because Peter had experienced these things, he'd experienced firsthand that obedience to God is best learned through adversity. It's in the midst of the trials, the hardships, the difficulties that God reveals himself the most, that teaches us the most. Peter, I think, is thinking of the last time that he had with Jesus before Jesus died. The time before Jesus died to when Jesus rose again three days later had to have been some of the most difficult, toughest suffering that Peter had ever experienced in his life. Because the last words that he said about Jesus were, I never knew him. The book of Luke actually tells us that after he says that the third time, Jesus looks at him and makes eye contact with him. And then Jesus dies. And Peter spends three days, complete, utter wreck, because what he feels like he had just done to his master, and what he did just do to his master. And then Jesus came back. Jesus rose from the dead, and he experienced the joy. He experienced the uh, obedience that he had learned through suffering, through this fire. And Peter is pointing out that if you want to know how to suffer well, if you want to know how to live in the midst of your suffering, look at Jesus. See, Jesus' suffering is substitutionary for us. It's, it's unique in that regard. None of us is going to suffer for other people to live to the same extent that Jesus did. But each, and a, each of us can look at Jesus as an example of how to suffer, of how it is done in the midst of those times. Even though Jesus suffered in a way we never will, we can look at him to see, and I know this is going to sound weird, we can look at him to see the correct way to suffer in our lives. You see, Jesus is suffering for us. And when we're discouraged, when we are faced with a ton of junk coming right at us, we can be encouraged by that truth that Jesus has suffered for us because he is the perfect example. Do you want to know how to live faithfully in the midst of the injustice that you experience? I want you to spend a few weeks just reading John chapter 13 through 21 or Mark chapter 9 through 16. This is all about the suffering that Jesus experienced. And those passages, while they talk about Jesus' death for humanity to redeem them in God's eyes, they also tell us how we can live faithfully in the midst of the hard times of our lives. And this is what Peter is getting at when he says that Christ is an example for us. Peter tells us why. This is significant. He tells us so that we can follow in his steps. We can follow Jesus' steps. That Jesus is an example for us. The word follow today has been really watered down. You can follow the news. You can follow someone on Twitter. You can uh, follow people without a lot of commitment. But in the first century, this word follow was a, an extreme commitment. I just want to read this quote to you about how this is a life commitment. And I, I love the way the author puts this. He says it this way. Following in the first century means in the first place, unconditional sharing of the master's destiny which does not stop even at deprivation and suffering in the train of the master, and is possible only on the basis of complete trust on the part of the person who follows. He has placed his destiny and his future in his master's hands. And Peter is calling for radical commitment 
for the people that he is writing to. A radical commitment to follow the example of Jesus, even in the midst of those times where it makes us hurt like crazy. Because Jesus himself hurt like crazy as well. Jesus doesn't disappear when things get tough. We are called to have a complete and utter trust in him throughout our lives. The words that are used here about following in his footsteps just bring up a vivid imagery, especially with the first snow following, of a young child following in his parents' footsteps through the snow, jumping from step to step in the midst of the snow. And that's what Peter is telling us here. That's how closely we should follow God. That's how closely we should follow his son and his example. See, Peter doesn't just say follow the example of Jesus. He tells us what Jesus did as our example. And remember, Peter was there. Peter saw what Jesus went through in the final hours of his life. He vividly remembers what it was like when he told Jesus that he was going to go to the cross with him. And instead, he ends up denying him. It's almost as if Peter is saying, don't be like me. Be like Jesus. Don't go for the easy way out. Don't deny him the way I did. Learn from my mistakes. He's the perfect one who committed no sin. Be like Jesus. He had no deceit in his mouth. Be like Jesus. He is your example. Be like Jesus. What does Peter mention when he says this is what his example is like? Well, first he mentions that Jesus was reviled, but he did not revile in return. If you look at the book of Numbers, there's this passage from the book of Numbers that talks about Moses and Moses' relationship with the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are actually reviling Moses. It's the same word that's used here. They're reviling Moses and, and focusing on what Moses has not done for them. They say they accuse Moses of, of actually bringing them out into the wilderness so that they can all die of, of hunger and of thirst. This isn't the first time that this has happened to Moses, but there's only so much that Moses can handle. And so in response to the reviling that he's experiencing from these people, he strikes a rock. And water comes flowing from it, but it's a, an act of disobedience against God. He, he reviles them in return. He, he gets angry at them in return. And in response to that, because he was disobedient to God, he ends up forsaking and forfeiting his right to go into the promised land. You contrast that with Jesus himself. Uh, I want to just read you some words uh, about what Jesus experienced in the last moments of his life. This is from Matthew chapter 27. It says this. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in In three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God now deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. How does Jesus respond? I love the way it's put in the book of Luke. It says this. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus did not revile them in return. He was silent in the face of mockery. He prayed for God to forgive the people who were reviling him. And Peter is telling us to do the same thing. When we are mocked, when we are reviled, when we are treated poorly, we should not respond in anger, but we should be exactly like Jesus. Don't try to get even, but instead pray for God to forgive those who are causing you this hurt and this harm in your life. And if you're like me, you have one question. How? How on earth can we do this? How on earth can we have the strength to not only endure injustice that we experience, but also to pray for those just like Jesus and ask for their forgiveness because they do not know what they do? The Sunday school answer here of, well, Jesus was God, doesn't help us at all when we look to Jesus as our example. How was Jesus able to do this? That's what Peter answers in the last few words of verse 20 when he says that not only was Jesus silent to his uh, revilers, he didn't threaten, but continued trusting in the one who judges justly. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. I love the words that are used here because he doesn't just trust God. It might sound like the right Christian answer, but it doesn't get to the depths of what Jesus did in the midst of this situation. He entrusted himself to God. He gave everything, gave the entire situation, his entire life. He gave it to God and said, God, it is in your hands. You are the judge. You are the one who is in charge. So I'm going to give this to you and you are going to be the one who is in control and you are going to take care of this for me. Jesus had a rock solid confidence in the fact that God was in control. And because of that confidence, he places it all in, Jesus, in God's hands. And that might sound like it's impossible for you. It might sound like you are going through too much to be able to place it all in, Jesus, in God's hands. That Peter and God are actually just asking for too much in this situation. You're not Jesus after all. So how are you supposed to place it all in Jesus' hands? How are you supposed to entrust justice to the just judge? And that's what Peter closes with, that answer to that question. In the following verses as we close this passage, please pick up with me in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter closes by telling us how we can endure justice, how we can make it through the tough times even in the midst of the extreme situations of our lives. How do we do the impossible? By realizing this, that Jesus' suffering was for us. Jesus' suffering was for us. You might be saying, well, wait a minute. I know that. I know that Jesus suffered for me, and that doesn't really make my life any easier. So how on earth does the fact that Jesus suffered for us, how does that make it easier for me to endure injustice in my life and, and entrust it to God? We already mentioned that Jesus knew God was in charge, that God was the one who was in control. He knew that those who mocked him, that those who reviled him, that those who tortured him would have to face God, the judge, one day. 
And Jesus knew with a rock-solid confidence that God was either going to repay those people for the injustice that they had done to him, or God's justice was satisfied through what Jesus was doing on the cross. Jesus knew that they were going to face justice where justice had already been met through what he was doing. Do you have the same confidence? Do you have the same confidence that everyone will face justice someday? When you are wronged, that you can entrust justice because there is a just judge who will take care of these things in our lives. Are you able to let go of the hurts that have been uh, done to you because you know deep down with every fiber of your being that God is in control and God is going to take care of this, especially God is going to take care of justice. The person who caused you suffering, the group of people who have caused you suffering, are going to face justice someday. Suffering will be served. Justice is going to take place really in either one of three ways. Everyone on the face of the planet is going to face justice in one of three ways. The first way is you suffer in the moment. When you do something wrong and you deserve to suffer, you will receive justice in that moment. That's the first way. The second way is that God will bring the justice upon them in the last days. And the third one is that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for their injustice. Everyone on the face of the planet will face justice in one of those three ways. And that is good news for us. It is good news because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's what these final few verses are about here. Not only is Jesus our example, but Jesus provided a way for us to escape the justice of God by being justice for us. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says this, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus the sinless, perfect one to be sin, to take our sin upon himself so that we might become, that we might take hold of, that we might possess the righteousness of God. And take a minute right now and just think of someone that you have wronged, that you have been mean to, that you have caused to suffer, that you have been unjust to in your life. If you're like me, it probably doesn't take you very long to create a long list. And the good news of 1 Peter chapter 2 is that the justice of God has already been satisfied in Jesus. The justice that you deserve for the things that you have done to other people has already been satisfied in Jesus. You no longer have to face the just judge because the just Savior has died for you on the cross. And that's what Peter is talking about here. And so I ask again, do you trust God to handle the justice when you are wronged? Do you trust God to take care of everything when things that are wrong happen to you? In the heat of the moment, you might want to lash out. You might want to uh, get back at that person. But in the heat of the moment, are you able to say, all right, God, this situation is yours. I'm going to give it to you. You're in charge. You know what's going to happen. I entrust it to you. And you might be saying, well, no, that's not me. But I want that. I want 
to be able to trust God with justice, that I want to entrust the entire situation to God. And so how do I go forward from this place? Well, the first thing I would say is just pray. Ask God to give you more confidence in his righteous justice on your behalf. Ask him to open your eyes to seeing the ways that God's justice is actually already at work even now today pray that God would open your eyes. Second thing, I would encourage you to just read through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not primarily a bunch of crazy prophecies that are really funky and interesting to read. It's all about God's justice being satisfied in the last day. God's righteousness will prevail in the last day. And when we read through the book of Revelation and continue to meditate on it, we see in our our confidence and God's justice is increased. And I think that another thing that's helpful is to go and ask for forgiveness for those you have wronged. Ask for forgiveness from those who have been hurt by you. Because when you ask people for forgiveness, and when you admit that the justice of God has been satisfied on, on Jesus for your behalf, when you do that, makes it easier to endure in the moments where you are experiencing hardship. Entrust justice to the just judge. Know that God is in charge, that God will take care of everything for you on your behalf. Look to Jesus, not only as your example, but as the one who suffered for you, the one who died for you, the one through whom you can escape justice for your sins by looking at the cross. The justice of God is far better than revenge. Oftentimes, when we seek revenge, it actually just makes the situation worse and we don't feel any better after achieving our revenge. And so we should entrust justice to the just judge, knowing that he is the one who is in charge, knowing that he is the one who can take care of this for us. And it's like wrapping a healing salve on a wound. And we trust justice into God's hands. When we say, God, this situation is yours. I'm going to let you take care of it. I might not make it immediately easier to handle the situation. It might take us five years, ten years. But this concept, this truth, that we entrust justice into God's hands will make it easier to forgive, easier to let go easier to continue worshiping him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the truth of this passage from 1 Peter. We are so thankful for what you have done for us, what you've done on our behalf, that we have escaped the righteous justice of God through the death of your son on the cross. And Lord, give us the strength to look to Jesus as our example. Even in the same way that as he was on the cross, he prayed for those who had mistreated him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God, I pray that we would be able to do the same thing in the midst of those situations, even if they do know what they do, that we would be able to forgive them and ask that you would forgive them. God, give us the strength, give us the courage to go forward in trusting justice into your hands, knowing that you are a good, 
holy, righteous God who will take care of us, who will take care of our situations, and will work all things for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.